Praise God for that wonderful, wonderful opening. And, and I hope you'll notice that almost every theme, the theme of almost every song is in the message today. And the last slide, they stole my tie. So. <laughs> a few years ago, <clears throat> there was a true story about a man in New York City who was kidnapped. His kidnappers called his wife and they asked for $100,000 ransom. She talked him down to $30,000. The story had a happy ending. The man returned home unarmed. The money was recovered. The kidnappers were caught, and they were sent to jail. But doesn't it make you wonder what happened when the man got home and found out that his wife got him back for a discount? (laughs) Calvin Trillin was the writer of the story, and he imagined out loud what the negotiations must have been like. $100,000 for that old guy? You've got to be crazy. Just look at him. Look at that gut. You want $100,000 for that? You've got to be kidding. Give me a break here. $30,000 is my top offer. And Mark Trotter concluded his rendition of the story with this thoughtful comment. I suppose there are some here this morning who can identify with the wife of this story but for some reason I find myself identifying with the husband. I like to think that if I were in a similar situation, there would be people who would spare no expense to get me back. They wouldn't haggle over the price. They they wouldn't say, well, let me think about it. I'd like to think they would say, we'll do anything for you. And the point of this story is that sometimes it's okay to be extravagant. And that's precisely what today's story in the Gospel is all about. Let's read John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lives, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. One writer commented, Couldn't Mary at least have used a towel? I mean, come on, wasting a bottle of perfume 
worth nearly a year's salary is pretty gutsy, but really, couldn't one of the disciples find a dishcloth or a handkerchief or something less offensive, less sexually suggestive, less in-your-face than Mary's long black hair to wipe the perfume from Jesus' feet? Most likely, Mary could have used the towel if she wanted to. But part of the nature of Mary's gift was its boldness. Mary threw caution to the wind, risked her reputation, and spent a whole lot of money on a lavish act of devotion, anointing Jesus' feet with costly perfume. We're told at the beginning that six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany. We need to remember that Bethany is only two miles from Jerusalem. Bethany is only two miles from the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus. Bethany is only two miles from those who plotted to take Jesus' life. In chapter 11, we're told that Jesus knew that the Jewish leaders wanted to arrest him and kill him. So he went into hiding in the area of Ephraim. Yet now he returns to Bethany. Why? Well, Scripture tells us why. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. It quickly becomes obvious that the dinner was hosted by the Lazarus family. And we're told that Martha served the dinner. Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. And Mary poured the perfume. Jesus returned to Bethany so that he might spend some time with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. They were close and dear friends of his. And this time of fellowship was meant to honor Jesus, to thank Jesus, to encourage and strengthen Jesus in his final week before the cross. Lazarus is at the meal as a witness. He is identified as the man whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Just days before, he was dead and buried in a tomb, his body decaying and it had begun to smell. But Jesus miraculously raised him from the dead. Lazarus is a living, breathing witness to the power of Christ. Lazarus is a living, breathing witness to Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And Lazarus is a living, breathing witness to life in Jesus. Lazarus served just by being there present, and alive. And at the end of our scripture reading, we read that a large crowd came not only to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And at the end of our scripture reading, we read that the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. In John chapter 9, remember what the leaders did to the blind man that was healed by Jesus? They hated his testimony, his witness to the power of Christ, so they threw him out of the temple. Both Christ and those who, who, those who witnessed to Christ are hated and despised. So both Christ and those who witnessed to Christ must die. They wanted to put Lazarus back into the tomb because he was leading people to faith in Christ. 
And if people will not accept the evidence of Jesus as Savior and Lord and Messiah, then they must try to get rid of the evidence. And we read about this every week in the persecuted church. Persecution increases day by day around the world today. Those like Lazarus, who witness to Jesus, can expect to be persecuted. And then there's Martha. True to her personality, Martha is busy serving. And isn't that what she did the first time that we read about her when Jesus came to their home for dinner? In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, we read, Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what Jesus said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations and had to, that had to be made and complained that Mary was listening instead of helping. Martha's service was just as much a fragrant offering as Mary's perfume. The third member of the family is Mary. Lazarus is a witness. Mary serves, sorry, Martha serves, and Mary witnesses. Mary adores, sorry. Let me say that once more. Lazarus is a witness. Martha serves, and Mary worships and adores. John mentioned mentioned her anointing Jesus' feet because it was the lowly task of a servant to wash the guest's feet. In the next chapter, John tells how Jesus washes the disciples' feet as an act of great humility that we should follow. But Mary didn't use a towel. Rather, she wiped the Lord's feet with her hair. Now, respectable Jewish women never let down their hair in public. In fact, it was considered a mark mark of of a woman of loose morals. But Mary was so caught up with her her devotion to Christ that she didn't stop to consider what others might think of her. Mary cast public opinion to the wind. She let her hair down and she wiped Jesus' feet. Mary let her hair down before Jesus, a man who was not her husband. And she probably shook her hair loose so it hung on her shoulders. And she dried Jesus' feet with her hair, her crown and glory as a woman. Back then, only a prostitute, a loose woman, someone immoral, did these sorts of acts in public. And we can learn from Mary, because as far as Mary is concerned, nothing is too costly, nothing is too extravagant, nothing is too humiliating to express her love and devotion to the Lord. For the sake of the Lord, she uncovers her hair. For the sake of the Lord, she acts as a slave. For the sake of the Lord, she pours a most expensive perfume on his feet. For Mary knows that nothing is too good for the Lord. Mary gave to Jesus her best with all of her heart and soul and mind. In Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, we see three responses to Jesus. We see witness, we see work, and we see worship and adoration. What are the responses in our lives to Jesus? 
And as scripture so often does, it it presents a contrast to Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And first, we contrast the actions of the Lazarus family to that of the chief priest. Remember what Caiaphas had said in chapter 11, it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So the Sanhedrin had decided that Jesus had to be killed before everyone believed in him. And from that day on, they plotted plotted to take his life. And now they decided that Lazarus had to die because of his witness to Jesus. When Lazarus, Martha, and Mary see Jesus, they are filled with an overwhelming love. When the chief priests see Jesus, their teeth are set on edge. There's another contrast as well with Judas. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary respond to Jesus with an act of love, a feast, a dinner, a time of hospitality. As is often the case, people become critical of those who strive to give their best to the Lord. And it's Judas who started the criticism. Our scripture reading records the first words of Judas found anywhere in the four Gospels. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Judas was saying, unlike Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that Jesus was not worth it. And we can only believe that that Judas had already decided to betray Jesus. Judas claimed concern for the poor, but Judas was not concerned for the poor. Rather, he was concerned for himself. John tells us Judas was a thief, and he used to help himself to the monies that were put in the money bag. And it appears the monies were meant for the poor, but Judas spent the contents on himself. And we end by looking at the words of Jesus. In response to Judas, Jesus explains what Mary did. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus mentions my burial. In other words, Jesus acknowledges that he will die just as the Sanhedrin wants. And let's not forget the where and the when of these words. The where is in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, two miles from those who hate Jesus and plot to kill him. The when, says scriptures, is six days before the Passover. And the Passover, as we know, is when the lamb is killed in remembrance of God's great salvation act in Egypt. At that time, God's angel of death passed over every home whose doorpost was sprinkled with the blood of the Passover lamb. In other words, the lamb was only days away from being slaughtered. And not just any lamb, but the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The time of Jesus' suffering and death is almost at hand. The time of his burial has almost come. Do we serve Jesus for the satisfaction we get when we see results? It is satisfying to see him use us, but perhaps that's the wrong motivation. Do we serve him because it helps others? 
Again, it's gratifying to see others helped, but again, perhaps that's the wrong motivation. The true motivation for serving Christ is because he is worthy of everything that we can do for him and because we love him and we want to please him because he gave himself for us on a cross. At a pastor's conference, Bill Mills told about a time when he was speaking to a group of Wycliffe missionaries in South America. On the last evening, as he ate dinner with the director and his wife, she told him how years before they had been assigned to translate the Bible into one of the Indian languages. And this is a lengthy and tedious process because before computers, it often took as long as 20 years. During the process, the translators were teaching the scriptures and seeing a new church emerging among the tribe. But as they came towards the end of the translation project, the tribal people were becoming more and more involved in selling their crops for the drug trade and less and less interested in scriptures. When they finally finished the translation of the New Testament and scheduled the dedication service, not even one person attended. The missionary's wife was angry and bitter. She had given 20 years of her life so that these people could have the scriptures, but they didn't even want it. Then with regard to Bill's ministry of the word that week, she said, it's as though God had been washing his word over my soul and healing me, and he has opened my eyes to see this all from his perspective. I am just beginning to realize now that we did it for him. That's the only thing that makes any sense in all of this. We did it for God. Mill concludes that is the only thing that makes any sense in ministry. We do it for him. The world may scorn us and reject our message. Other believers may criticize us and not appreciate what we're doing. But we aren't wasting our lives if we spend them in selfless devotion to Jesus. Sadly, throughout Christian history, some have used Jesus' response to Mary, the poor you always have with you, as a justification not to help the poor. But these interpreters miss the fact that Jesus was probably alluding to the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11 which commands generosity towards the poor exactly because there will never cease to be some in need on the earth. It's a call to action, not inaction. In his book, Feasting on the Word, the theologian Stanley Hauerweiss takes it even a step further. The poor that we will always have with us is Jesus. It is the poor that all extravagance is to be given. Ultimately, maybe the biggest difference between Mary and Judas is that Mary gives out of her abundance while Judas sees scarcity. Mary understands the enormous gift that Jesus will give. And out of that gift, she sees plenty, grace enough for all. But Judas, well, he's like many of us. He sees scarce commodities and few resources. If we're always worried about getting more, buying more, making more, 
then it's hard to give because we're focused on what we don't yet have. In 1992, Bill Cowher took over as the coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Some of you old enough may remember that. He quickly showed himself to be a man with a future. The Steelers made the playoffs each of his first several seasons as coach, and they went to the Super Bowl in 1996. And one thing that made Coher an effective coach was that he focused on his priorities. In Sports Illustrated, Tim Credders writes, after almost every game, every practice, Pittsburgh Steelers coach Bill Cowher drives straight home to his wife Kay and their three daughters. He doesn't do ads for cars or frozen yogurt. He he exists inside his two passions, family and football, exclusive of everything else. Cowher is so focused that one afternoon... He was seated next to a woman at a civic luncheon and he politely asked her, what is it that you do? The woman responded, I'm the mayor of Pittsburgh. Granted, it's a good idea to know who your mayor is, but Cowher shows us one essential truth. A person cannot focus on everything. A person with priorities must let some things go by the wayside. The more we focus on the Lord, the less we focus on the unimportant things of this world. And in his book, The Normal Christian Life, the Chinese preacher Watchman Nee points out in the last chapter of his book titled The Goal of the Gospel that in the parallel accounts of Matthew chapter 26 verses 6 to 13, Mark chapter 14 verses 3 to 9, and Luke chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, all of the disciples joined Judas in scolding Mary for wasting this this expensive perfume on Jesus when it could have been sold and the money given to the poor. In Matthew 26, 13, Jesus defends Mary by replying, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done, will also be speaking of in memory of her. And he goes on to say that Jesus intends that the preaching of the gospel should reflect something along the very lines of the action of Mary here. Namely, that people should come to Jesus and fill themselves on him. Or to state it another way, the gospel is to bring each one of us to a true estimate of Jesus' worth. If Jesus is the great pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in the field, then it's not foolishness to sell everything we have to buy that pearl or to buy that field. Jesus is worthy for us to devote all we have and all we have to him. One of the amazing truths of Christianity is the glorious resurrection of Jesus from the dead. John 20, 27 to 28 states, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. This confession is none other 
than an absolute surrender to the Lordship of Christ as God. Thomas's confession is heartfelt worship in the presence of the risen Savior. So are we like Thomas who bows in worship and adoration of Jesus as our Lord and God? Because Jesus is worthy of our worship. Because he is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Jesus died the death we all should have died because the wages of sin is death. He suffered in our place and took the full wrath of God against our sin and he secured our complete forgiveness. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he is the bread of life. Jesus, is, Jesus promises to satisfy our souls and that we will never go hungry or thirsty spiritually. He is the only true source of nourishment and life for sinners that need salvation. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he is the light of the world. We live in a world of darkness and sin where people do evil deeds and wickedness. Jesus shines brightly into that darkness and he provides hope for the hopeless and direction for the aimless. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he is a good shepherd. He voluntarily went to the cross on behalf of rebellious sinners because the only way we can be reconciled to a holy God is through the penalty of death. We are lost, helpless, hopeless, and hell-bound sheep without a shepherd going our own way into sin and destruction. And Jesus reaches down into our depravity and chaos and brokenness and doesn't wait for us to get our act together or somehow earn his favor. Instead, he takes the initiative as a good shepherd and he lays down his life for us. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he is the resurrection and the life. Through him, we can have eternal life and not have to suffer eternally for our sins. Because of Christ, we will not have to endure eternal conscious torment in hell, but will live forever with him in heaven as our glorious home. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he is the only way to salvation. Jesus is not just one of many good ways or desirable ways to be accepted by God. He insistently claims time and time again that he alone is the sole doorway or entrance into a relationship with God. And Jesus is, the, is worthy of our worship because he is the giver of indestructible joy. The joy Jesus gives is that deeply rooted and settled confidence in peace, in his sovereignty, where we trust in his promises no matter what the circumstances. And Jesus is worthy of our worship because he has given us the Holy Spirit. We have the promise from Jesus that the Holy Spirit will live in us forever and will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he is the coming king. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is more than just a good example for us to follow, but in fact a sacrificial substitute 
who died in our place and is worthy of all our worship. And we should follow his example and we should walk in obedience to his commands and love our neighbor as ourselves and engage in ministries to help ease suffering in our world. But yet at the same time, we need more than just an example in Jesus. We need to do more than just good works in Christ's name. We need a Savior. And at the end of the day and into eternity, we need an absolutely sovereign King who is worthy of all our worship. As Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, when things seem hopeless or we feel persecuted by the world, when the world scorns us and rejects our message, when other believers may criticize us and not appreciate what we're doing, we must remember that we aren't wasting our lives if we spend them in selfless devotion to Jesus Christ. Because Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11 gives us that great assurance that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please stand for our closing hymn and prayer.